All right, you guys, we have so far considered six of the seven seals on this scroll that only the Lamb of God was able to open. The first five seals dealt with the entire period of what G.K. Beale calls the church age. And so by that he means this time between Jesus' first and second coming. The first four seals, each one of them was associated with a specific horseman of the apocalypse, and each was symbolic of the kinds of judgment that would occur at the Lord's appointed time and places until he comes again, which is we call the parousia, right? When Jesus comes again, that, that specific theological term is called the parousia, or his second coming, or the second advent. But the sixth seal, or excuse me, the fifth seal gave us a glimpse into heaven and the activity of those who are in heaven who are waiting for the consummation of Christ's kingdom, which again happens at his second coming. But the sixth seal, as well as the seventh seal that we'll be considering tonight, they both deal with the final judgment when the wrath of the Lamb is put forth. So you could divide up the seven seals into like two groups, the first five and then the last two. And so let's read the text that we have for tonight, just the first five verses in chapter 8, and then we'll pray, asking the Lord to bless our time. So the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw seven angels who, were, who stand before God, and seven trumpets who were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire and the altar and filled fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we Thank you for letting us gather tonight to be in your word together. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would let this time be beneficial to our growth. Help us understand. We pray for clarity, especially as we approach this book, knowing that it has been unclear for so many. But we pray that it would be clear for us this evening and that you would help us to grow in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the seventh seal is opened the same way that the previous six seals were opened. The lamb, he's the one who's worthy to open it. And so he does, he opens it, reminding us that the Lord Jesus is sovereign and reigning as the promised Messiah through all the events that happen in the time span of these seals. But this time, rather than seeing, John actually hears something. And what he hears is interesting. He hears silence. It's interesting because we haven't been used to reading, or we have been used to reading about this chorus that is just never ending up until this point in heaven. Uh, there is much that we don't understand exactly about heaven, but the one, one thing that Revelation has shown us clearly is that there is a constant ringing out of praise to Yahweh, praise to the Father, and praise to the Lamb especially. And that's coming from the group of redeemed uh, saints who are there, those who have conquered through the Lamb, and those who are clothed in white and whose robes have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And then also we've read about angels who are joining in song and singing praises. Uh, myriads and myriads of angels is what we read back in the couple previous chapters ago. And somehow even, as well, all of creation is giving God glory as communicated in the form of a hymn, according to what chapter 5 says. Heaven and the new heavens and the new earth 
is not generally described as a quiet place. There is joy upon joy and gladness in, in, in the hearts of people and, and in God's creation and reason upon reason for people to be happily singing and offering praise to God. But there's going to be a time when all that happy noise ceases, as Revelation 8.1 communicates. When the Lamb opens the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven. And like it is with the majority of texts in Revelation, many different believers have come to different conclusions as to what is going on with this silence in heaven. What's the reason for it? Why, why now? Well, the context give us the, gives us the best clue as to what's going on. And so remember, chapter 7 wasn't really about the details that a seal was concealing. It was a parenthesis, basically, meaning to give us hope and remind us that the church won't be lost through the judgments that come across the world. Chapter 7 was this elongated parenthesis, the whole chapter. Uh, the first half of the chapter was about God sealing the elect. Remember, we talked about the 144,000. And then his, his preservation of his people through the judgments that come upon all of humanity in this time period. And the second half was a reminder of the totality of God's saving efforts. That is, that at the final analysis, the chorus in heaven will be made up of elect from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and they will serve the Lord and sing his praises and live to, to serve him forever and ever in his presence. But that was all a parenthesis for our encouragement. Chapter 6 and the sixth seal specifically, which is the, the last few verses of chapter 6, that's actually the preceding context. And so remember what was said there. This is chapter 6. You might remember it from a couple months ago, or a couple weeks ago. Verse 14, or verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For who are for the one for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. So that that's the preceding context to what we read in this seventh seal. And the subsequent context is our passage for this evening and specifically verses three through five. Verse five especially, actually. Verse five is the response to verse three and four. And verse two actually happens to be another uh, parenthesis, which I understand that's tough for us as people who are typically used to what we experience in literature in English. Uh, we are typically very linear, but this is apocalyptic literature. And we have already had some diff difficult passages with symbolism, but I want to warn you guys as well that it's going to get even more complicated from this time on, all the way up and through chapter 21 especially. But at the same time, remember that the intent of the Holy Spirit in giving us this book, the desire that the, the Apostle John expressed in the opening chapter from the Lord Jesus was that we would understand what this book is, that understanding it would be a blessing for us. And so what we'll do is we'll just continue to use the same interpretation methods that we have been using in the previous 31 sermons. And I, I think it will make sense, but I do want to acknowledge that we're going to start getting into more difficult symbolic imagery and more difficult ways of reading because it's not so linear. Um, it hasn't been linear already even, but it's going to be even less linear now. So 
First, let's continue to think about 8.1, and then we'll, after that, we'll explain verse 2 and why we should see it as another parenthesis, kind of like how chapter 7 was. And then we'll examine 3 through 5. And so for verse 1, taking the context, when the seventh seal is opened here, and there's silence for about half an hour, it's not because this seal is, has no content. It's not because it's empty or something like that, or that God needs there to be silence so he, he can hear the prayers of verses 3 and 4. God knows all things, remember? He doesn't ever learn anything. His knowledge is perfect. And the content of the seal is, in fact, its silence. That's on purpose. And remember, just like seals 1 through 5 are connected, seals 6 and 7 are connected. And so this silence is actually associated with divine judgment. We see that in 6, 12 through 17, and 8, 3 through 5. The silence is the content of the seal. And the silence is what we would expect with divine judgment. And this is divine judgment on the greatest scale that the world has ever seen. More than the flood in Noah's day, because this is the final judgment that is being described here in these two seals. Repentance is no longer available here. After this event is over, the eternal age will come, which is eternal life for everyone who is trusting in Christ for the elect, and they'll live with God in the new heavens and the new earth, and eternal death in hell for those who have persisted in their sins and refused to acknowledge God and their need for salvation and grace. And this is not the first time that silence has been associated with judgment in God's word. Psalm 31.7 speaks of a, a similar matter. Psalm 31.7 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your, oh, excuse me, 17. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently into Sheol. They go silently into Sheol, where divine judgment is in view. They go silently to the grave. Or Habakkuk, if you want to flip over to Habakkuk, it's in the Old Testament, I'll give you some time to get there because I'll need some time to get there myself because it's not exactly an easy book to find. There we go. If you see Zephaniah, you've gone too far. Nahum is the next book. It's right after Micah and Nahum. So Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. He says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. If we were to keep reading Habakkuk through 3.15, and let's actually, let's turn our attention there towards the end of uh, chapter 3, or towards the middle of chapter 3. Um, it's, the same, it's the same sort of language that we read at the end of chapter 6 and in 8, verse 5. So notice verse, start at verse 9. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhered, Withered, withered, excuse me. The raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, and it lifted up its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So similar types of imagery and judgment language that we've seen already here in Revelation. 
Zephaniah chapter 1 is similar, and that deals with the, quote, day of the Lord, which is the same day that's being referenced here in the sixth and seventh seal. Zechariah writes about coming judgment when he says in chapter 2, verse 13, Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling, and he's coming to, to judge. The idea being expressed here is that God's holy majesty is expressed in divine, as expressed in divine judgment, brings all of creation to be silent and still before him, frozen in their tracks, kind of like a deer in, the, in headlights, unable to even make a sound. We don't have many storms here in California, in the Bay Area, but it's, it's like that quietness after a big storm. Or those times when you're outside and it just, everything just seems to be so very still and quiet, like there's no wind, there's no sound of birds or, or bugs, and the air just feels weird. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that before. It, it is weird. And usually when the weather is like that, people tend to call it like, oh, this is earthquake weather which is a, a weird thought as well, um, considering what we are studying now. It actually made me think, actually, like, why do people call that kind of weather, that phenomenon, earthquake weather? It's not like it happens every time there's an earthquake. And it's not like many of us experience so many earthquakes that we could have some sort of baseline experience. And I kind of wonder if it has something to do with what Romans 1 says, that about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, which reminds us, that the truths about God are plain, that these truths that mankind suppresses in unrighteousness. And so this silence here at the seventh seal, it's part of the content uh, of the actual seal itself. And it's symbolic of the divine judgment that is taking place. There are just times in life when silence is the correct response. I think of the tragedy that Job went. Have you guys read through the book of Job before? Job loses, he, he's a godly man, we're told, a man who is pursuing righteousness, and he loses his children, his wealth, and part of his mourning process, his friends come up to him, and they just sit with him for seven days, we read. Seven days saying nothing, just silent with him. Sometimes silence is, silence is the appropriate response. It thrusts itself on us at times even. Uh, think about if you've ever been to Yosemite before and you drive into the valley and where it all opens up and you see Half Dome and there's like that, it's that awe-inspiring feeling where it's just like how amazing this is. I've, I've heard the same, the same type of things happens at Big Grand Canyon. I've never been there. Or when you get like the right angle of a very broad and beautiful ocean or when a bride walks in at a wedding and she comes down the aisle, especially for the groom, there are these times where it's just like silence is thrusted upon us. And how much greater than all of those things, than, than anything even, is God himself. And especially the might and majesty of the very one who created everything in his wrath, being here now in his wrath. Stillness, silence. It, that's the response, an appropriate response. It used to be somewhat uh, popular for people to quote Psalm 46.10 as a proof text for your private um, devotion time. That's not the worst thing that people would cite it for, mind you, uh, even though that's not its context. At the worst, people would say that they quote that verse or they cite that verse, and they would say that that means you should, you know, 
use it as some sort of way of getting new revelation from the Lord. Like if you want to hear God's plan for your life, they would say what Psalm 46.10 says and explain that in just a minute. But I want to say up front that there's nothing wrong with private devotions in your life. Um, It's a good thing to do, to read and pray and to meditate upon God's word by yourself. It's not as good as gathering with the church, I think, but private worship isn't bad at all. Um, But I used to hear people say, that you really should have a quiet devotion time because the Bible says, and this is Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. And the point was that you're just often too busy, and so you need to be still and focus on God. Just pray harder, read more, that sort of a thing. It's sadly the result of pietism and personal disciplines as the main means of one's spiritual growth rather than the means of grace uh, that gets distributed when the church gathers. But that quote Be still and know that I am God. People are ripping it out of context when they use it for private devotion or some kind of revelation from the Lord. So note its context. Okay, Psalm 46, 8 through 11. It says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salah. It's in the context, this, this concept of being still and knowing that I'm the Lord is in the context of divine judgment. And the reality of divine judgment should cause us to be still. It should cause us to be silent. There's nothing we can do to work our way out of it. Our only hope in the face of divine judgment is the riches of kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We have nothing to say for ourselves at that moment. No record we could bring to God of the good things that we did. Our only option is to say that we're guilty and that Christ made atonement for us. It's the reality that Christ Jesus took on himself divine judgment, that we will be able to stand on that day, that Jesus did what we could not do, what we wouldn't even have wanted to do because we were born by nature children of wrath. But Jesus, of course, was not born in the same way that we are. He's the eternally begotten Son of God, and he was born miraculously. He never sinned. He was always faithful to the law of God in every single way. He was tempted and tried just like us. But in all of that, he never once sinned. And yet, he willingly, and I might add as well, that Scripture confesses that he went silently to a lamb like to like to slaughter like a lamb, Isaiah 53, 7. He did that silently to take upon himself divine judgment, divine judgment for all those who would trust in him and believe in him. He was a sacrifice, a substitute in our place. And he died, but he didn't stay dead. He was risen on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he revealed himself to his friends. And then after a time, he ascended back to heaven Truly God, truly man, and now he lives to make intercession for us, we read in Hebrews 7. He lives to mediate for those whose faith is in him, to go in between them and God. Friends, you understand, right, that if you're not trusting and resting in Christ for salvation, then the judgment that's being spoken of here in the sixth seal and the seventh seal is something that should terrify you. It, it should. Be still and know that he is God. None, I don't. None of us have any room to boast before God of the things that we have done. But 
if you desire forgiveness for your sin and for Christ to make a way for you, then it's because God has revealed himself to you. The Lord has shown you this. You might have heard about it from your parents or from myself or from someone else. But if you really believe it, it's because the Lord has worked in your heart and life. And so repent and believe and be baptized and seek grace to walk after the Lord, all because of what he's done for you. Now, the silence here, it's not perpetual silence. It lasts for a specific amount of time. A half an hour, about a half an hour, you'll bless you, is what it says. And this is a bit complicated, but if you're familiar with apocalyptic literature, lengths of time often apply something. When you think about the time periods mentioned in Daniel, for example, that have to do with the same period of time that we're learning about here in Revelation. Sometimes also, um, the word hour can refer to a time of judgment, like the hour of God's wrath, for example. And then if you have half a time, if you add that half an hour, Usually what we see that referring to in apocalyptic literature, especially again in Daniel, it refers to like specific times of crisis, crisis and judgment. So think back to chapter 6 and the sixth seal. Remember what those people were, in, were doing? They were hiding themselves in caves and in mountains, and they were wishing that the mountains would collapse on them. They're, they're in this moment of crisis. And so if we pull all this together, the silence for a half an hour here in 8.1 is communicating to us the divine judgment of God, and it's being let out. The silence is not empty. It's, it's full of God's wrath. And the only way to escape it is for God to have taken it upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's get to, let's just go in order here now with the rest of these verses. Verse 2, as I said, is a parenthesis, similar to how chapter 7 was. So verse 2 isn't, technically speaking, part of what he's seeing in this seal. It's something that John is seeing at the same time as what he's seeing happen in this seal. And he sees seven angels with seven trumpets. Get back to Revelation. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Look down at verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Right, so, that, so that's where it picks back up. That's where that thought is picking back up. From 8.2, it's, it's alluding to something that's going to happen in verse 6 and beyond. We're going to read about uh, the seven trumpet judgments next is what, is what I'm trying to say. So verse 2 is moving us along with the vision sequence that John is receiving here. But there is connection here. It's not totally disjointed. Remember what is often happening in Revelation is the church is being given information about overlapping periods of time. Like, if you would think of it, maybe they're like they're stacked on top of each other, even. Uh-oh. I think it's fine. Um, and so what happens in, so general things are happening, and the, and the church is being given this information over time, and... It's all up to the sovereign Lord as he decides to bring them out in this period of time. And so what the further chapters of Revelation will do is give us a different angle of the same event. Remember the football analogy that I tried to bring up a couple times before? Technically, it's called recapitulation. And so what we'll see is that these seven trumpets will in some way correspond to the seals that we already read about. And the trumpets will take us all the way through chapter 11. And there will be a significant parenthesis in that coming section as well. And so it's, it's all related information. 
And the same thing will be done again with the seven bulls in chapter 16. And the seals and the bulls, they, or seals and the trumpets, they actually have a similar literary structure. You could divide both of them up into the same two groups, the first four each being of the same kind, followed by two with a different perspective, and then also a, parenth- a parenthetical um, section in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, just like it was with the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And really, you know, what this tells us is that as far as a literary device goes, Revelation is quite beautiful. It is complex, but it's also very systematized. It's all on purpose. I know that Ruth gets high praise as a piece of literature, but the function and the form of John's apocalypse is a masterpiece that only could have been written by God. And so this passage here in verse 2 is serving to connect the two sections, even though we haven't really finished the first section yet, uh, to show that they're not sequential. It's not like the seals get done and then the trumpets happen, but they're happening simultaneously as the Lord dictates. And then comes verse 3. Uh, verse 3 through 5 is the conclusion of the description on the final judgment that began in 6.12 and 17. This picked up again in 8.1. And so we read that another angel came and stood about the altar. And so the imagery is, of course, still heaven, as we read about in verse 1. But specifically, it's the throne room again. The angel, it's difficult to say for certain, but it could just be an angelic being acting in servitude to God. Some people say that it's in reference to Christ, and that's possible. But again, it's hard to say for certain. The being is close to the Lord God, certainly, acting in the position of a mediator. He's, he's bringing these prayers to God. It could be the figure, which again, might be a reference to Christ in Isaiah 63, called the angel of his presence, Isaiah 63, 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But this angel that we read of here in chapter 8 is standing at the altar. There's an altar present. Altars, of course, are something that we should be familiar with. It's where sacrifices were made. Specifically, I'm thinking in the Old Covenant. I'm thinking of the Christian history in the Old Covenant and the precepts that God set up for temporal forgiveness in the Promised Land. Uh, The altars, if you study Leviticus, for example, they were these very bloody areas. There's animal lamb blood, bull blood, the blood of birds littered all over the place, especially near the altar, because the sacrifices would be made there for atonements and for um, offerings, goodwill offerings. Even burnt offerings took place at these different altars. And we should especially think of the altar that we were already introduced to, especially because of what this angel has. So we read back in chapter 6, verse 9, when, when he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So there wouldn't be any actual blood, if this is an actual altar even, but not just symbolic. But here is this altar in the throne room of heaven, and the souls, these, these faithful souls who were living sacrifices for the Lord on the account of his word, they're present there. And remember what they were doing, uh, what we were told of them doing. They were at rest for the most part, or most importantly, uh, being in heaven in the presence of God. And there's overwhelming peace with the, based on the victory of Christ and his blessing to them. But their very presence there meant that God's holy judgment would be poured out at the right time. And so we read that they were crying out to God, not for vengeance, but that God would vindicate his name. Remember, there's no sin that will go unpunished. 
No suffering that won't be resolved. If God didn't make peace with one at the cross, then judgment will certainly come. And so the saints in 6-9 were praising God and acknowledging that. And God responded, you might remember, all the elect at that point of the telling of that vision hadn't yet been drawn in. They hadn't yet been saved. And so we read in verse 11 in chapter 6. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, these, these two scenes that we have here in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, and Revelation 8, uh, 3 through 5, they are corresponding. They're making us to understand the bigger picture. They're looking at the same, the same thing, but from a slightly different angle. And so what we see again is that God does hear his saints. John 9.31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God will listen to him. And more than just listen, we are meant to understand that God even delights in our prayers. The prayers here in chapter 8 are commingled with incense, with a, like a good-smelling selling, smoke, and they rise up to God by the hand of the angel. I actually want to say a lot about prayer and the importance of it, so we're going to come back to this section next week. And I have a sermon specifically on the topic of prayer based off of what we read here in 3 and 4. But for now, note that these, these prayers and the smoke, it rises up to God. And then at the right time, according to God's plan, when all, if we think back to chapter 6, when all those who were destined to get the mark of the Lord were gathered, verse 5 comes into play. That same censer that held the prayers is then filled with fire from the altar and it's thrown down upon the earth. What the saints were asking for in 6-9 for God to vindicate his holy name, God, and God also answered it in 6-12 through 17, but God is also responding to it here in 8-5. The judgment is taken to the earth and there are peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and earthquakes nearly identical to what is said of the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl as well. You'll see that when we get to them. And Richard Bauckham calls this event the eschatological earthquake. It's the earthquake to end all earthquakes and the end of death and sin. From this point on, we're not going to read about it until we get to Revelation chapter 21, actually. But from this point on, after this earthquake and this, these thunder and these lightnings that are cast down onto the earth and what they symbolize, from that point on, the earth will be containing a redeemed mankind walking with his redeemer. The new heavens and the new earth. But this earthquake must come first. This eschatological earthquake. This earthquake that will destroy the foundations of everything before ushering in the eternal age. Everything but one thing, that is. When Christ Jesus was on the cross, there was a great earthquake then as well, you might remember. At the moment the Son of God died, we read of an earthquake. And this is a tough text. I thought about going to like the house built on sand to talk about that, how that foundation, one foundation won't crumble, but another will. But you know, this is the book of Revelation, so we like a challenge. So I figured we'd look at this other time in, at the end of Matthew's gospel. Um, so look at Matthew 27, 51 through 53. You might be familiar with this passage. I've never really heard anything about it that I thought was 
oh, that's like good and that makes sense. And so I was really looking at it in light of what we see happening here and being revealed in Revelation. So Matthew 27, verse 51 to 53. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It's a tough passage, admittedly. I mean, I've struggled for a long time here. And there are certain side questions that come up about it, but that we're not going to get to tonight. But I see something being clearly implied here that I really hadn't noticed before. In, In Christ's first coming, divine judgment was poured out upon our beloved Savior, not because of any sin that he made, because he was sinless, but he bore divine judgment upon his body for his church. And at the moment of his death, a great earthquake happens, twisting, the twisting of the earth causes the temple curtain to be torn in two from the top to the bottom. It's as if, it's as if God was from heaven, ripping the veil, proclaiming that the way to him was through Christ and his atoning death. But the difficult part here is that the tombs were opened. And we read that the bodies of saints who were dead were raised as they walk around the holy city and appeared to many. I've heard people joke around before, like it was like a zombie apocalypse or something, but that's not the point. These are, these are people who were raised to death based upon Christ's sacrifice and his own resurrection. So again, I'm not trying to address side questions here because there are a few that I can think of. But at the second coming of Christ, there's going to be a great earthquake once again. And after that, the divine judgment. Or at the same time as that divine judgment, and just like at this time, but at a much greater scale, the saints who are in heaven will get their glorified bodies and walk the earth once more. This difficult passage that we read of in Matthew, more than anything else, is meant to give us a picture. It's a type of what will happen when Christ will come again at the end of the age. And again, this time not to die, but to defeat death once and for all. This this moment of this great earthquake happening, which is going to usher in the eternal age where mankind will dwell in peace with God here on the earth, in the new heavens and the new earth, is the antitype of what we read about here in Matthew 27. The tombs are opened again with this eschatological earthquake, and the saints in glory will get their body first, And then the sealed saints on the earth, the saints who are still alive there, they'll get their glorified bodies after, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, as they'll be caught up to the Lord in his triumph. Listen to the inspired words of the Apostle Paul describing what this earthquake brings, what this final judgment brings for those who are saved by Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 57. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, by that he means we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, so that's a synonym for this final judgment, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will raise imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this imperishable, perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must, be, must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the church has in store for them on that last day. That final judgment is when the tombs for the saints are opened up and they get their new bodies that they'll live with in, on the earth with the Lord for eternity in worship. And by the way, we didn't have time to get into this tonight. Even those in rebellion to the Lord will get new bodies as well. And they'll live in eternal death in hell for that. But what we have happening here is the Lord God giving this to the church so the church can be encouraged knowing that these things are true. He's making sense here in Revelation of things that have happened in the past throughout God's, for God's people, for the church throughout the, uh, the history of redemption. And so that we can look at what's happening in this world and understand that God is truly in control. And he means good for his church and for his people. And so I would compel you, friends, to trust him. Uh, again, the day of wrath, the final judgment, it inspires silence across the world. Uh, for how awesome and terrifying the Lord God is. But for those who can stand before the Lord because of what Christ has done, because they've been sealed by God, and they have the Spirit, it's a time of joy as we see Christ coming again to usher in the eternal age. So let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for giving to us uh, these words through the Apostle John. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to Think rightly about them, and especially as we deal with these difficult passages, we pray for extra grace, Lord, that you would help us to take into consideration all of what your word says, Lord, that we might see it all as one unit, your message for your people, so that they may know your will. Help us to not understand it through a man-made lens, but help us to understand it with your divine intent in mind. And may we all find refuge in that final day in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, you guys, any, any questions or anything like that that I could attempt to answer? There's lots of questions about the, the tombs. <laughs> lots of questions about the tombs. <laughs> really or no? <laughs> uh, like I said, we could go on. And it's a... Uh, you know, I thought about like. And were the, the bodies. You know, that, did they still appear? Yeah, because I. With Jesus in glory at that time? Or like, yeah, that's my biggest question, too, is when we think of heaven right now, most people I've read will say, like, Jesus is the only one with a glorified body. But there's also Enoch to think about and, Mo, and Elijah to think about who were caught up. And then there's also this group of people who don't even know how many there are, but it talks about them having their bodies. And so did, they, did God take that from them after that? I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't say, but interesting to think about. But to me, what stood out so clearly is that it's a type of what's going to happen at the end of the age. Like, why, like that's the other thing. Like, why does it even say that? Like, it, no, none of the other gospels even record that event happening. Only Matthew does. And it's like, why? But then I was thinking, oh, well, this actually makes sense. It's, it's showing us what will happen. It's a small scale of what will happen at the end of the age when everyone who's trusting Christ will get their glorified bodies. 
I don't know. It says that the people saw them too, like Yeah, so many so many other questions that we could ask. It Yeah, I don't know. All right, so, yeah, so next week we're going to talk about prayer specifically, right? Thinking of silence and prayer as shown through these two areas.